on April 8, 1906, a long time ago, uh, the Reverend Charles S. Wing delivered a sermon to his congregation uh, in New York City. And in this sermon, he exhorted his mostly recent immigrant congregation to climb every mountain and to reach greater heights than they could ever achieve and to fulfill their American dream. And the takeaway from this sermon was that they needed to believe in themselves and also to help those around them. And to illustrate this, he used what may be a very familiar story to you. Uh, it's called The Little Engine That Could. Uh, it was published later in a Sunday school journal. And then finally in 1930, it was published as a children's book. And for those of you familiar with the story, you probably read it as a kid. And for me, we've been reading it often with my boys, Elliot, for he knows it quite well. He's probably reading it outside right now. Uh, anyway, the book is about a passenger train that has its engine breakdown as it's trying to climb up this mountain. And so as it's waiting on the side of the road, other larger, more capable trains are come roaring by, and each time the broken down train asks them, hey, can you help me? Can you help me get up that mountain? Just pull me up there. But each of them, for various reasons and excuses, they, they all say, no, we can't help. When finally, a small little blue engine comes along, and despite being small and seemingly incapable of pulling this larger passenger train up the high mountain, it was able to do it. Through sheer determination and repetition of the famous phrase, I think I can, the train did what the other more capable trains couldn't do or didn't want to do. It helped its fellow train no matter the obstacle. And so just like children's fairy tales, we often turn the Bible into these simple, moralistic, feel-good stories. We condense them and simplify them into stories about general kindness, helping other people, and just being good. And the parable that we're going to look at tonight, the Good Samaritan, is no different than that. It's a very familiar one. I'm sure everyone knows it here. And it's so familiar that Christians and non-Christians know it very well. It's a symbol of compassion and charity. Uh, there are hospitals named after this story. If you just drive down LA, Good Samaritan Hospital is right there. Uh, there are other Christian charities named after this, like Samaritan's Purse. And if somebody calls you a Good Samaritan, uh, that means you probably did something good for society. Like you probably gave $5 to the guy outside of Chick-fil-A or you volunteered at, at the soup kitchen, or you did something like that. And so for most people, the story of the Good Samaritan is a good one. And it's one of Jesus telling us to help people who are less, un, less fortunate than ourselves. But most who are familiar with this famous parable don't, re, don't remember that the whole parable started uh, because of one question. And that question was, how do you get eternal life? And that's where it all started. Jesus didn't just randomly decide to tell the story. Uh, it was an answer to the question about eternal life. And this question of eternal life is such an important one for you and for me. And so have you ever wondered if you have eternal life or if you've done enough to get it? Or maybe you've wondered if you had enough faith or if your faith was strong enough. Do you have eternal life? Well, if you've ever wondered about these things, somebody else had that question too. And it's that person 
who was asking that, that question in, the, in our story. It's no, not the Good Samaritan. It was actually the lawyer. Yeah, we always forget that there was a lawyer in this passage, but he's there. So let's take a look. So if you would, take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Not John, but Luke. So let's go there. And the parable itself starts in verse 30. So before, for us, we're going to have to start a little before that. And we're going to start in verse 25. And we need to go back and see why Jesus gives us this parable and the series of questions that lead up to it. So let's look at Luke chapter 10. I'll be reading from verse 25. Uh, it reads, And a lawyer stood up and put him, Christ, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, saw him, felt compassion, and came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Uh, to start out, it might be helpful to get an understanding of what's happening in Luke so far. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, we're starting to see increasing opposition from religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and all their followers. So they don't like Jesus because of his popularity, all the crowds following him, and more importantly, they don't like his teaching. They don't like what he's saying. And so they're in the business of conspiring, ganging up together, and they're looking for different ways to trap Jesus. Uh, they're looking and hoping for different methods to discredit Jesus and hopefully catch him in a logic trap or something, and maybe get him to say something inflammatory against the Romans and give them grounds to put him to death and just get rid of him. And so for us, we see in our passage that a lawyer has stood up to challenge Jesus. And through this challenge, Jesus is going to show us the king's standard for entering the kingdom. And the king's standard for entering the kingdom starts in verse 25. Uh, and we see in our, our point number one tonight is that we're going to see the standard recited. So number one, the standard recited. In verse 25, it says, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
uh, this man was a lawyer, so not in a courthouse sense of the word like we would be familiar today, but this lawyer, he was part of the Jewish religious leadership. So his law expertise was on the law of the Old Testament. Uh, he knows the Old Testament inside and out. And so he, this man rises up from the crowd, has his question prepared, and Luke tells us his motive, and it's that he wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to challenge him. We don't know exactly how he wanted to trap Jesus. We only know his motives. But even then, you can't trap Jesus in a logic trap. It just doesn't work. Right? It's impossible because you can't trap the creator of logic in that trap. And so we'll see how Jesus here masterfully uses this question, this challenge, as an evangelistic opportunity. He's going fishing. And so the question from the lawyer is, what do I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus... He answers by asking another question in verse 26. It says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And so basically Jesus is saying, hey, you're the expert. Uh, why don't you tell me? Well, what do you see? And so instead of the lawyer testing Jesus, Jesus is now the one testing him. And another thing here to note, if you look at what Jesus is asking him, is that Jesus isn't interested in his opinion or what other people said. He wants to know what's written. He wants to know what's written in, in God's law. He wants to know chapter, verse, something definitive and decisive. And the lawyer gives him that, exactly. If you look down in verse 27, the lawyer being the expert in the law that he is, he quotes scripture. He quotes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the famous Shema passage. They would recite this every morning and evening, and it's foundational to their the religion. All the adults know it, the kids know it. And so he uses that, the lawyer does, and he uses Deuteronomy 6, and he adds Leviticus 19 at the end, the loving your neighbor as yourself. So it's two of those combined. And so the lawyer masterfully summarizes the heart of Jewish religion in one sentence answer. And you gotta give him credit. The lawyer knows his stuff. And he says, if you summarize the whole law of God into one sentence, it basically comes down to two things. You love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer recites what he knows. Uh, he probably had it prepared ahead of time, but hey, he, he gives the answer. Well, how does Jesus respond? Uh, did the lawyer get it right? Did he get the right answer? In verse 28, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He accepts his answer, affirms it, and tells him to go and do this. So if you're the lawyer at this point, put, it, put yourself in his shoes, you're probably a little bit frustrated, right? You realize that your attempt to challenge Jesus isn't really going the way you want it. He's actually challenging you. And so the lawyer here, he has a follow-up question. In verse 29, he goes on to ask Jesus, well, well, then who is my neighbor? And we have to ask ourselves, like, why, why is he asking this? Right, he gave the right answer. Jesus gives him the right answer, the, the follow-up. Why does he need to do this? Well, Luke tells us. In verse 29, he says he wants to justify himself. And so why did he feel the need to justify himself? Well, the implication is that he wasn't satisfied or justified with Jesus' response. So not sure what the lawyer was looking for in a response, but it certainly wasn't what Jesus was saying. 
right? So basically, Jesus says to him, yes, you answered correctly, but Jesus didn't say, good job, you have eternal life. Uh, In fact, Jesus just reiterated the command, if you do this, you will live, as in you haven't done it yet, you haven't met the standard, go and do this. And so the lawyer was made to look bad so far, and so maybe he wanted to find a different way to argue his way back in a positive light. It's kind of like when you're maybe with your friends and you're debating something, some random topic, and you've clearly lost this debate, right? And everyone's kind of moved on. People have started to walk away. People have exited the chat. And, and you're like, but wait, but wait, but wait. And so this lawyer is asking this question. And so as the expert in the finer things of the law, uh, this is his default. Like he wants to argue this. And so he continues it, and he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor then? Uh, but before we get there, I'm going to take a little pause. I want us to look at the standard that the lawyer recited a little bit. Right? It's the command that we all know, to love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's something about this that we're familiar with, but maybe we don't realize. Uh, one commentator helpfully points out that we're so, fil- so familiar with this command or this part of the law that we think it gives us comfort. Right, that these are nice words or lofty sentiments and that the essence of true religion is loving God, who, couldn't, who wouldn't get behind that? And it's a beautiful idea, most would say. But we have to remember that this is summarized as a law. And the Bible tells us that the law is there to show us sin and it's there to point us to Christ. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Therefore, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Uh, God doesn't accept your effort as good enough, like a participation trophy in in Little League or in soccer, or you don't get that gold star in your notebook. God requires of you in this command to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and that is perfection. It's not loving him just 10 minutes at a time and checking that box off. It's all the time. And Jesus affirms this by saying, do this continually, and you will live. And so for us, if we think that doing our best to fulfill verse 27 is the key to getting eternal life, we're completely deceived. We're just lying to ourselves, which is exactly where this lawyer is at this point in the story. He thinks, and he truly believes, that he has done verse 27. He has loved God completely and perfectly. And because Jesus doesn't give him that, he, he, he moves on to the second part. He says, oh, maybe it's because I didn't do the neighbor part right. And only that because we have different definitions of neighbor. And so who is my neighbor? And so we've seen the lawyer recite the standard. And so let's look at number two, the standard illustrated. And we'll see that in verse 30. Uh, So here's the famous parable, starting in verse 30. Jesus here could have just walked away. He could have just been like, hey, I made my point, gave you the answer, you know the truth. I could have just be done with it. Instead, we see even just a little glimpse of Jesus' mercy here on display by entertaining his question and giving him an illustration. And so we know the story well. In verse 30, it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him, and they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
And so if you've taken up Matt's suggestion uh, in the last couple weeks at the beginning of the series and you read through all the parables, again, not in John, then you've probably noticed that Jesus liked to use some really extreme situations uh, and eye-catching ones. And this one is no different. So even with the start, starting with the setting, this man is on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. So for us, that doesn't really mean anything. But for the listeners, it meant a lot. It's basically the equivalent of you starting a story by saying, there was a man walking down a dark alley. It's 2 AM in Skid Row. And he's just coming out of an ATM. Everyone knows what's going to happen. And same with this crowd. And so Jerusalem to Jericho, for those of us who haven't been to Israel, uh, Jerusalem sits way up top on a mountain. It's 2,500 feet above sea level, and Jericho is way down below. It's 800 feet below sea level. So we're talking about 3,300 feet of descent. Uh, still don't really know what that means. So it's basically you would hike down the Hollywood sign three times. Uh, so it's not an insignificant descent. It's pretty there. Uh, yeah, Malachi would do it, though. Uh, and the current bus route right now, it would be 24 miles. So it's a long stretch of road. It could have been longer back then. It's just long and windy. And we know it's a dangerous one. Right? The historians at this time tell us that this was infamous for robbers. Uh, there were so many caves and hiding places along the way that robbers and thieves, they would just hide out. And then when merchants and travelers would come along, they would ambush, ambush them and then rob them. And so for the people listening to the story, they know what's going to happen. They know what's going on. And sure enough, that's exactly what Jesus says happens to this man. He's robbed in verse 30, and they take all his clothes, they beat him, and he's half dead, aka he's half alive. He's got nothing. He doesn't have clothes anymore. He's got very little hope for a good outcome. But Jesus gives the audience a glimmer of hope. He says in verse 31, by chance, a priest was going down on that road. This must be good news, right? With the priest's arrival, the hope is that this holy man of the law would be the best person to help. He would know the scriptures. He knows God's commands. This man would be one who could love his neighbor as himself, certainly. Uh, he would know passages like Exodus 23, so where you see your enemy's cow stuck in a ditch along the side of the road. It says you, you have to go help that person, uh, person's cow. And so if you're going to help that person's animal, for sure you would help the person who's lying on the, on the side of the street. And so the audience is thinking, the priest, yeah, he's the guy. He's going to help. But what happens? Uh, Jesus flips the script and says at the end of verse 31 that the priest saw him pass by on the other side. Not only did the priest not offer any assistance, he saw the situation and then went the opposite way, as far, as he, as far away as possible. Uh, just as a side note, how often do we do this? And we often see needs, and we think that somebody else is going to fulfill them. This is somebody else's problem. Or, and there are so many ways that this affects our life. Maybe it's when you go to church. Or when you're coming here to GOC and you see a new person and you think, oh, somebody else is going to talk to them. I, it's, it doesn't have to be me. 
uh, or because you're not on the welcome team or you're not part of a ministry team that's in charge of doing that, you don't need to do that. Or you see a need, but because it's not someone in your small group or it's not somebody that you live with, there's not somebody in your apartment, or even that person's not in GOC, that you're not going to help them. And we, when we think things like that, when we do things like that, we're just like this priest who saw the need and went away without helping. And this priest here doesn't love his neighbors. And so in verse 32, we see another person. It's this Levite. And so what's the difference between a priest and a Levite? So priests were from the tribe of Levi, but priests were special ones. They were from the line of Aaron. And so priests, they were the ones who are supposed to perform sacrifices in the temple. And Levites, however, these were also from Levi, but they're not from Aaron. And so what does that mean? They were ones that couldn't perform the sacrifices, but they were the ones that could help. So they were the administrative assistants, they were the temple guard, they did maybe the cleaning, they did the facility work. And so the Levite's life would revolve around the temple. And he would also be familiar with the law. And he would know the commands, he knows what God's requirements are. And so if the priest didn't help, surely, surely this Levite is going to help. But Jesus, again, he goes against our expectations, and he doesn't give the Levite the hero story. And so the end of verse 32, what does the Levite do? He came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. He did exactly the same thing as the priest. He came, saw, and went to the other side. It's like if you were walking down Bruin Walk, somebody eats it on his scooter, and you're just like, oh, saw that, I'm going to go on the other side away from this injured person who just maybe broke his arm. And the point of this story is that you've probably heard uh, a lot of sermons in the past talking about, okay, why did the priest and why did the Levite do this? Well, maybe why? There's got to be good reason. And so maybe people have, have said that these two religious people didn't want to get their hands dirty, right? They, they thought maybe he was dead already, so they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean that the priest couldn't touch a dead body or he didn't want to touch blood. Or maybe it was that they were scared. Maybe that they thought the robbers were still just hiding around the corner, so they just hurried up and, and went the other way. And so they saw the situation and just left. Or, or maybe there's another reason, people say. It's that they were going down to Jericho, which means they would have finished their duties already and they would still have plenty of time to clean up and, and things like that. So all these, so many different reasons. And I think all these interpretations are forgetting something important, that the parable is a story. It's a story that Jesus just made up, right? It's an illustration. And as one commentary puts it, uh, he says, the inner thoughts and motives of these characters are irrelevant because these are fictional characters. The priest and the Levite, they never existed, right? So it's pointless to discuss what the priest and Levite were thinking because they didn't exist. And so without getting too speculative, all we can take away is that the priest and the Levite, they were not neighbors. They were not good neighbors. And so where does that leave us? Verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan. 
And you have to put ourselves back in the audience shoes again. Right? So the priest and the Levite not helping was pretty extreme. But once Jesus says the word Samaritan, that's when you would hear scoffing, murmuring from the audience, maybe some aud audible groans, people just maybe like walking out. And why? And so you see that the Jews and the Samaritans were bitter enemies. And just the chapter before this, in Luke, we have James and John, disciples of Jesus, asking Jesus to call down fire to destroy a Samaritan village. Uh, when the Pharisees wanted to insult Jesus, what did they call him? They called him a Samaritan with a demon, the two worst things that they could call somebody back then. Uh, back then, there was a statement in the Mishnah that says, he who eats the bread of Samaria is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. That doesn't really mean much to us because we like our bacon and pork belly. But for the Jew, that would be the worst thing that they could say. And Jews would even publicly curse Samaritans in the temple. And they would pray imprecatory prayers that they wouldn't inherit eternal life. And where do these people come from? Uh, after Solomon, Israel was split up into two kingdoms. There's the north and the south. And so the northern kingdom was exiled by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, as the conquerors, they brought in different people to come inhabit the land that was vacated. And so when the Israelites were finally able to come back, they had people living in their land. And they then mixed in with them, intermarried. Not only intermarried, but they mixed their religion. And so the Samaritans held on to the first five books of the Bible and nothing else. They even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And here's where the animosity starts. Uh, the Jews didn't like them because they had intermarried, and they also thought they had a corrupt religion. They messed things up. And so when the Jews from the southern kingdom came from exile and were rebuilding their temple, the Samaritans offered them to help, offered help. But the Jews said, we don't want help from people like you, and they insulted them and told them to get out. Get out. So what did the Samaritans do? They sabotaged their temple. They didn't let them build it. Uh, later on, a Jewish king saw the temple in Mount Gerizim and destroyed it. And another time, the night before the special feast that they had prepared for the whole year, uh, the Samaritans snuck in in the middle of the night and scattered dead man's bones all over the temple. So the next morning, not only did the priests have to clean up all the bones, they couldn't celebrate the holiday of the feast uh, that they had prepped for all year because of all these, all these dead bodies in, in the temple. And this went back and forth for years. Uh, to contextualize it, this isn't this not this not like UCLA and UC, USC students pranking each other by dumping paint on the Bruin Bear or on Tommy Trojan. This is more long-standing, deep-seated hatred. And so we go back to verse 33, when Jesus says, "But a Samaritan." That's probably what they were thinking. Who is this guy? What is he going to do? Is he going to kill him? And we see we don't know why the Samaritan's coming. Uh, but he, he comes, and he came, and he saw. And what else did he do? In verse 34, Jesus gives us a rundown of all the things that the Samaritan does. If you look at verse 34, it says, He felt compassion, and he bandaged up his wounds. Uh, travelers back then, they didn't just carry extra supplies with them. They didn't have extra clothes for the week. 
uh, first aid kits lying around. This is probably an extra piece of clothing that they had, or more likely, Jesus is probably saying he gave up his own shirt. He ripped it up so that he could bandage this guy's wounds. And then he poured oil and wine on them. All right, oil and wine were expensive products. And notice how Jesus phrases it. He, he says he poured it on. He didn't just dab it a little bit. He, he emptied it. And the wine was the antiseptic. And the oil was the ointment to help in the healing process. And so here the, you see the Samaritan giving up his goods. And next we see that he put him on his animal. The Samaritan carries the man up onto his donkey. And now he's walking the rest of his trip alongside the donkey. He gives up his ride on this long journey so that the injured man can be carried. And the last part of verse 34 is this, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he didn't just find an inn and just left him there and went on his merry way. No, he found the inn, paid for the room, and took care of him. How long did he do that? And we know that he stayed with him all night because the next verse, verse 35, it says uh, on the next day he was still there. And the next day, he gave the innkeeper money and told him to spend whatever he needed to care for that man, and he will come back and repay him. And so how much money did he give to denarii? It's also a little bit hard for us to understand. Uh, does that mean he was generous, or was this like two cents? And so two denarii back then, some estimate to be about worth two months worth of a hotel stay. So it would be like you just dropping five to $10,000 on the hotel counter right there and telling the innkeeper, this man's room is paid for for the next two months. And more than that, look at what else he says. It says that take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll come back and I'll repay you. Just add it to my tab. And the innkeeper could have just made up anything. He could have just said, racked up all those charges. But the Samaritan doesn't care. Right? He doesn't guard against that. His focus is on loving the neighbor. So the Samaritan starts off on this trip. He had somewhere to be. But it doesn't matter, right? He, was, he sacrificed his own time, his own possessions, and money. And to care for who? This was a stranger, but it was an enemy stranger. He was not supposed to be his friend, much less a neighbor. As Jesus is telling this parable, you can imagine how the lawyer is feeling. Right? First, he's not affirmed by Jesus, made to look bad. And then now he has to hear this ridiculous story about a Samaritan caring for a Jew, his enemy, in such a crazy way that how could this ever be possible? And now this is where Jesus is going to drive the point home. And we're going to look at our third point of the night. It's that, number three, the standard confronted. And we'll see the standard confronted in verse 36 and 37. In verse 36, Jesus turns the question back to the lawyer. And he asks him, okay, I've shown you the story. Which of these three people, priest, Levite, Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? Jesus already reverses the trap, flips the question, and the trap is long gone by now. And instead, the lawyer is the one being trapped. And instead of answering the lawyer's questions just straight up, like, who is my neighbor? He, gets into, and he doesn't really get into the definition and the argument of all the nuances. Jesus just, just, just tells him. Jesus tells us 
It's not about who your neighbor is. It's about who you are. Are you that good neighbor? In verse 37, the lawyer has no other reply. He just has to say, the one who showed mercy toward him. He doesn't even want to say the word Samaritan because he hates him that much. He can't bear to say it. Uh, But we get it, right? The lawyer here, he was made to look foolish. Jesus gives him no choice but to admit that Jesus is right. He had to admit that the Samaritan in the story was the one who kept the law. And at the end of this, verse 37, Jesus tells him again, go and do the same. Again, the command comes back, go and do it. AKA, you haven't done it yet. You haven't met the standard. And so this lawyer, a man who thinks that he loves God perfectly and he loves his neighbor perfectly and he's deserving of eternal life, suddenly he's shown that the opposite is true, that he's not that person, that he hasn't done it, that he's not the neighbor that he thinks he is. And if he's not the neighbor that he thinks he is, how could he be the God lover that he thought he was? So Jesus confronts the lawyer with the standard of entering God's kingdom. Can, can he do it? No. Well, what about us? What do we do when we're confronted by God's righteous standard? What's our takeaway? Well, the easy one here and most accessible one is that loving others isn't somebody else's problem. It's ours. It's our responsibility to help. And if you ask, who is my neighbor? The easy answer is that you go to a school on campus with more than 40,000 people, right? You are their neighbor. And Jesus, in this story, he doesn't draw any distinctions. He doesn't draw boundaries around who your neighbor must be. He just says, go and do likewise. Whether they're your friend or your enemy, it doesn't matter. Whether they look like you or they act like you or they talk like you, Jesus says, there's no distinction. And so as Christians, we have to think about where is our attitude? Where is our heart? And consider that if we have received mercy, how much more should we be willing to give it? And as transformed people, shouldn't it be easy to demonstrate this? If God, in his mercy, saved us, this should characterize our lives. It should be an outflow of that. Uh, if you've heard the phrase, love your neighbor, around, thrown around a lot these last few years. <clears throat> Starting with COVID, it feels like non-Christians and Christians were using it uh, all the time. And during COVID, when people said, love your neighbor, they probably meant uh, wear your mask, get vaccinated, don't get your grandma sick, don't you dare get me sick. Uh, they wanted you to do what was best for society. And they wanted you to uphold what they thought was important to them. And usually, this is where the parable of the Samaritan ends. People will just leave it at that, and that's their takeaway. And so the takeaway that we as Christians need to be just like the Samaritan, we need to give to the poor, help the needy, take care of the sick, and don't give COVID to to each other, that's probably the most people's takeaway from, from the story. But if we make Jesus' parable about just being a better person, it can lead to a lot of weird and bizarre takeaways. Uh, Just as as an example, Martin Luther King Jr. had something to say about this. He says, 
that the good Samaritan was actually not good enough. He's not a good model. He says that the Samaritan, he should have investigated the lack of police protection. He should have went to the government to go after the robbers. And he didn't like that the Samaritan only cared about the temporary relief of this person. He wanted him to go after the root causes of why there were even robbers in the first place. So if we made Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan only about social justice and making the world a better place and making sure that Christians are contributing to society, then we too would be missing the point that Jesus is making here. And if we're honest with ourselves, we need to be like this lawyer and be confronted by Jesus' standard. And you need to ask yourself, have you been that perfect neighbor? Uh, Not just to your apartment mate or your roommate or your family, your brother or your sister, but to everyone around you? Have you ever set aside everything you had, all your time, all your money, to help a stranger who was dying? And maybe once you gave money to someone on the side of the street, but we've never probably never done it to the extent that the Samaritan did, where you would treat your worst enemy, pay for his hotel, abandon your, all your plans, stay with him all night to make sure he was still alive, then pay for months and months of hotel stays. We don't do that. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur, he comments on this situation. He says that there's only one person you would do this for, and that person is yourself. Because that's just how we care for each other. Uh, that's how we care for ourselves. We give ourselves the best things, the best provisions. We think of ourselves all the time. And in our self-interest, we would do whatever we can to make sure that we get the best. You you buy the best insurance policies. You get everything you need. And you might get close to doing this for a friend or your family because they're your family. Or maybe the moms in this room would do this for their kids, all this sacrifice. But can you do this 100% of the time, 100% of the time for your family, for complete strangers, and not only that, but do it for everybody around you? And you would say that, are you expecting me to care for all 40,000 people on campus in the way of the Samaritan? That would be impossible. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly the point. Jesus is using the parable to confront our own self-righteousness. And we don't know what happened to the lawyer after this. Maybe he just walked away defeated. But the right response for the lawyer would have been to say, for him to say to Jesus, but Jesus, I can't do this. I can never love God like this. I can never fulfill this commandment. And if I can't love my neighbor this way, then how can I love God this way? There's no way I could do this. And often we forget that the story of the Good Samaritan was not first of all told to us as an example for us to follow, but it's there to expose our lovelessness and it's there to lead us to repentance. And the Good Samaritan doesn't preach us to do the duty, but he's there to reveal that we haven't met that duty. And so the Good Samaritan story may seem to us, to most people, like a feel-good story, but in reality, It's bad news. Good Samaritan equals bad news. And the bad news is that no matter how hard we try, in our sinfulness, we can't fulfill God's righteous standard. We can't enter the kingdom that way. If that's what's required of us to get into the 
kingdom, we're not getting there. We'll never get there. And we can't because we need a righteousness that comes outside of ourselves. And that's exactly why Jesus came. That's why he's teaching this parable in this moment to a self-righteous lawyer. It's to show us that God's love is even more profound than we would think. God sent his son to die for sinners who deserved eternal punishment. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching the gospel to Jews, and he tells them in verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Christ everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The law of Moses binds you. And so Jesus frees us from the law of Moses because he fulfilled that righteous standard on our behalf. Right? We couldn't do it. We couldn't get eternal life on our own. But Jesus died in our place so that when we believe in him, we receive that eternal life. His righteousness is given to us. And so this parable of the Good Samaritan was meant to draw us to Jesus. He's there to remind us to abandon our own self-righteousness and to come to the Savior who provides us forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And it's to make us realize that we can't do it. We don't have the ability to love God perfectly or man perfectly. And we have to abandon the idea that we even have something good to offer God in hopes to enter his kingdom. Uh, but Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't leave us without any hope. In Matthew 11, 28, 30, this famous passage, he, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, so if you're not a believer here tonight, Jesus is confronting you with his standard for entering his kingdom. And don't be like the lawyer who just walked away, not justified. Come to him, put your trust in him, because Jesus saves us from us in our futility and trying to work our way to eternal life. And for us believers, the parable is a reminder of God's grace, isn't it? That we can look at our lives we can see that we still don't love God the way we should. We don't love others the way we ought. We're still imperfect. But we're saved by grace. And God still sustains us by his grace. He continues to forgive us for our lack of love for him and for others. And he continues to sanctify us. And so if you're listening here tonight and you feel weighed down and discouraged by your sin, Jesus reminds you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And through his grace, he'll give you desire and ability to love him and to love others around you. And more and more each day, it's not going to be perfect, but God, in his mercy, he gives it to you. And by grace, he'll lead us home. And so that's the story of the Good Samaritan, why Jesus gives it to us, and why he answers the question the way he did. Uh, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for our time in your word. We thank you for the truth that you allow us to understand. We read this passage and we recognize our own inability, how we are unable to love you perfectly. We don't love others perfectly, but yet you still sent your son to die for us. 
you loved us perfectly. And so we come not because we have anything worthy to offer you, but because all we have is Christ. So help us to turn to you for salvation and also to help us to be reminded that our righteousness is Jesus' life and that only you can give us rest. So we pray all this in your name. Amen.